Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time to Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it is what is today. Thursday, June 8, 2023. Lord, 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 folks. Having a lot of technical difficulties doing this show today, but uh, producer Nate has done an outstanding job of setting me up with my phone uh, and uh, you're the man, producer Nate, for doing a great job. And my uh, dear friend and guest standing by is putting up with me. So love you, man, for uh, doing this. All right. Uh, before I get started with the interview, uh, just what's in the newspaper today and this ongoing saga, uh, which I got to give major a shout out to Cranes, um, uh, Chicago business for breaking this story and following up on this story. So Danny Ecker, shout out to you. Uh, Justin Lawrence jumped in on it today. Uh, it has to do with uh, the developer Sterling Bay uh, seeking assistance from the Chicago Teachers Pension Fund to bail them out on the Lincoln Yards deal. It is beyond irony. Uh, I already talked about it at an earlier show. I just cannot get over this story. Uh, one of our listeners sent me a, a text. I have so many of my listeners have been sending me images of the crane headline. Uh, or emails of the crane headlines going, Ben, can you believe this? Is this real or is this the onion? And uh, I'm not quite sure what it is, but it kind of ties into what I'll be talking about with my distinguished guest. And if you recall, ladies and gentlemen, 2019, as he was leaving office, uh, Mayor Rahm convinced the city of Chicago, uh, the city council, I should say, to uh, uh, set up a TIF that would hand over $1.3 billion, uh, $1.3 billion to the developers of uh, the Lincoln Yards, uh, uh, what was it, the mega property uh, project, which would be commercial real estate, residential real estate, uh, in an already gentrifying area. I fought like hell against it. I lost. I usually lost in those days. Uh, Daly and Romney's TIF deals. Uh, one of the people, one of the few allies in that struggle was the Chicago Teachers Union. The Chicago Teachers Union uh, saw this as a disinvestment in the public schools of Chicago by uh, turning over property taxes to this developer to develop this project. You were keeping that money from going to the public schools. Uh, there were protests by the teachers. They showed up on the site in their red Chicago Teachers Unif uh, Chicago Teachers Union T-shirts to protest it. Uh, and Mayor Rahm just strong-armed the council uh, into passing it. And lo and behold, four years later, it's on the brink of bankruptcy. They don't have the uh, commercial. They don't have their tenants. They need to move further, so they need help. They uh, the the original investors are trying to look like they're trying to get out of the deal. So who do the developers turn to but the Chicago Teachers Union Pension Fund? Because they have a lot of money, pension money, which they invest. Uh, and that is what, that's what keeps the pension fund alive. 
to a certain degree, those investments. So they're asking, oh, it's just so twisted. They're asking the teachers to bail them out on a project that took money from the teachers in the first place and that the teachers vehemently protested against, saying it would be far better used if you put it in schools, if you put it in neighborhoods, if you repave streets in neighborhoods that are crumbling, if you repave sidewalks, if you did the kind of investment that the city of Chicago should have been doing for the last 30 years, maybe we wouldn't have lost all the black residents that we lost. Just saying. This will tie it in with my distinguished guest. And so now they have a big decision to make. Do they bail out the developers? And I'm just shaking my head. You know, it's interesting. The Bears, <laughs> their deal is really, looks like it's on the ropes in Arlington Heights. So yesterday they met with Brandon Johnson. They want maybe the city to bail them out on a new stadium. Now the developers of the gentrifying community on the north side for Lincoln Yards, they want the teachers to bail them out. Brandon Johnson, the mayor, is, of course, a former Chicago Teacher Union organizer, a former Chicago teacher himself. So it's like teachers have to bail out gazillionaires after the gazillionaires took the money from the teachers in the first place. And Mayor Rahm told us, have faith in the private sector because the private sector is wise. And this is what they always tell you. They're rich. And if they, they wouldn't be rich if they weren't really smart. You know, this city, man, this city is so twisted and weird. I, I, I just somehow, sometimes I have a hard time just like coming to terms with it. So I don't know what the pension fund is going to do. I don't know what Mayor Brandon Johnson's going to do about the bears. I just know it's just painful irony that the people who have been hit the hardest by these policies over the last 40 years are now being asked to bail out the gazillionaires. All right, without further ado, I'll switch topics to a certain degree as I bring on my distinguished guest, who I will ask to introduce himself. Ben, hey, how are you? I'm Alden Lowry with WBEZ, and I'm glad to be back with you again. Yes, uh, and uh, Alden Lowry is one of four, I want to say, authors of a series that Be Easy in the Sun-Times uh, uh, well, is still in the process of running uh, that I've been ex I'm talking about and urging everybody to read since it broke about uh, the decision by Mayor Rahm to close 50 schools 10 years ago. It's the 10-year anniversary. Uh, and uh, whether Rahm... Uh, and the city made good on its promises. It's a deep dive investigation. Nader Issa, Laura Fitzpatrick, uh, Alden Lowry, uh, and the great Sarah Carp all worked on it together. So one more time, hats off to four great journalists for doing an outstanding job. Uh, all right, Alden, uh, let's let's just start off with the top. We'll, we'll tie, I think, everything together before all is said and done uh, uh, with this interview. But uh, what were some of the general conclusions uh, that you uh, that you reached uh, in this uh, investigation. Um, well, you know, it was a kind of an exhaustive look at um, the, uh, the the school closings from 2013, and um, really kind of looking back and seeing did the promises did the the, the, the Chicago Public Schools the promises that they made um, uh, in the aftermath of those closings, or as the as they were making the decision to close those schools. You know, did they keep those promises? Did the things that they said would happen as a result of those closings come true? And what we've found is that you know, pretty much across the board, the answer is no. Uh, CPS said that the students whose buildings were being closed would uh, would have better educations. Um, the schools that they were in indeed were underperforming, indeed were underenrolled. Uh, so they were schools that were in trouble. Um, CPS uh, set up uh, dozens of schools um, with um, additional resources, welcoming schools, as they were called, to receive uh, the kids uh, who were going to school in the closed buildings. Uh, and CPS said that they would have better educational outcomes. CPS also said that the buildings that they were being closed would be um, uh, would be repurposed, um, that those buildings would become community assets, um, and that uh, even though the schools had been closed, uh, you know, those structures would, would be uh, of use to the community surrounding them. 
Um, and then they also talked about the schools that were receiving the kids, that those schools would be buttressed uh, with the additional with additional resources and that ultimately would would uh, would lead to better educational experiences in those schools. And so uh, among a, num- a number of other things that they had promised. But uh, those were, I think, the, the biggest areas that that we researched. And so what we found is that the students who uh, who those, those students who were in those closed buildings, um, they went to a range of different schools. Um, some went to welcoming schools, some went to others. Um, but but by and large, their outcomes in terms of their test scores um, as high schoolers, uh, a, uh, SAT scores, um, were were no better than they were for uh, students who were in similarly situated schools that did not close and that were also not welcoming schools. Um, an analysis that we did showed that we also saw that the students who uh, were came from those closed buildings ended up. Uh, really going through, I would say, is a a very painful experience of going through a a bunch of different school options, trying to find uh, places that worked for them. Uh, They they switched schools. I want to say, you know, a a very high percentage of those students uh, ended up uh, switching schools uh, a number of times. um, And um, as did their their um, uh, their counterparts in the uh, comparison school sets that we we. Uh, you know, these are schools that were on the uh, list, the original list of, of uh, potential schools to be closed, but that were spared. Um, so uh, so they really didn't have much of a different the kids from closed buildings didn't have much of a different experience um, in in their search for 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 uh, adequate uh, kind of educational uh, homes. And um, and then uh, the buildings, more than half of those buildings that were closed uh, still remain vacant. Um, some have been repurposed, but, you know, uh, the majority have not, uh, many are still sitting uh, vacant, uh, as they were 10 years ago. And then the welcoming schools, um, the welcoming schools, the enrollment in those schools has, has fallen below where, where it was in 2013. So even the infusion of those additional, uh, those additional students from the closed buildings, uh, and those additional resources have not changed kind of the fate of those schools. Uh, and they've also continued to struggle uh, academically. Um, so, you know, by and large, um, what CPS and CPS's leadership had hoped to achieve by closing those schools, at least in terms of the experience of students uh, and the educational outcomes that they would uh, in, they would have, um, it doesn't appear to have really it, it it hasn't improved, and it doesn't appear to have have been any different than the experiences of students who were in similarly situated schools. That did not close. So, um, so it's it's a it's a grim picture. Um, and on one level, it's you know it can be called you know a a failure uh, on CPS. And I, I know a number of people who were in those buildings, uh, students, families. Um, I, I mean, everybody who was in Chicago at that time. I mean, it was a moment. You know, that lasted for several months as folks were literally um, you know crying their hearts out trying to get. Uh, the, the the mayor and the city's leadership to to and the CPS's leadership to do something different. Um, there were a few schools that were able to kind of argue their way off the chopping block, but the vast majority that were on that final list didn't make it. And um, so, looking back, this is uh, you know perhaps and I told you so for them, but I think it's it's also uh, I think a very sobering um, look at what public education in Chicago. Um, looks like and, and, and how, how difficult a picture that has been. And granted, CPS has not made perhaps the best choices, but I think the, I just, I think this, this series also highlights the magnitude of, of what it is that, that we're trying to do and, um, and how perhaps not only should we be talking about greater resources, but we should also be talking about much more dedicated, uh, dedicated and involved effort to figure out what are the right levers to pull in order to provide a quality education um, primarily. And when we're talking about closed schools, we're talking about black students. I mean, 90 percent. That was one thing that really jumped out at me when we looked at the numbers. Eighty nine percent of the children um, in those closed buildings were black, regardless of where they were in the city. There were there are there are. Most of them were on the south and west sides, but there were, a, a, I want to say, a handful of schools that were closed that were actually in, you know, majority white uh, communities, uh, majority white census tracts. 
Uh, there was one that was in the majority Latino census tract. Uh, but uh, but overall, this this was this was a, a black. These were, these were black students that were impacted by this. And for me, the, the biggest takeaway, aside from, you know, perhaps this being uh, a, a real monumental whiff uh, by CPS, is that uh, the challenge of educating black children in Chicago is an enormous challenge. And that's not to say that it is a losing challenge. It's just to say that it is a very difficult thing. And we have to think longer and harder about how we improve public education for black children beyond, oh, you know, we've got under-enrolled schools, they're underperforming, so the teachers must be bad, so the schools must be bad, so let's change the staff, let's let's close the buildings, let's move them to other schools. You know, this is a much more complex and complicated challenge ahead of us, and so we're going to need to invest a lot more thinking and a lot more money and perhaps a lot more time in order to try to figure this out. It, it, we, we can't look at this like, you know, some type of game of shuffleboard or something where we can move some pieces around and, and think that that's going to provide the magic cure. And, and I don't I don't mean to belittle all of the, the hard work and effort um, uh, of people who are in leadership positions uh, within CPS, within City Hall. Um, but, um, I, I, for me, that was, the, that's the real major takeaway is like, this is an enormous task and it requires a great deal, uh, and, an equal effort and an equal outlay of investment and resources in order for us to, to really bring about some, some meaningful change. And one of the things that really baffles me is that these closures happened at the tail end of Renaissance 2010. Remember that where we had this expansion of all these charter schools and, and, and the rationale there was, you know, we're going to create 100 new schools. And keep in mind, we closed 50 schools at one time in 2013, but we had already closed or reorganized almost 150 other schools um, in this effort to, you know, kind of shake things up and, and come up with these alternative methods and approaches to public education in Chicago. And it's like, well, did, did we learn anything out of that? You know, weren't we supposed to get some kind of grand plan, some innovative strategies to employ. I mean, like, I, you know, and maybe I missed it, but I, I, don't, I haven't I, I haven't seen the blueprint that was supposed to emerge from that whole effort um, that, you know, that took place the 10 years before these closings. So anyway, I, you know, just, you know, for me, like we, we've got a real I mean, we've got a real challenge. We've known we've had a real challenge. And uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that we can devote what what is really necessary in terms of time, energy, effort and thinking and resources to, to, to address it. All right. Well, there are some people, by the way, that was a great riff. Uh, and I took a whole bunch of notes uh, with the follow-up questions, but I, I'll just respond to your last point first. Uh, there are some people in the city of Chicago, some jaded observers of Chicago politics and Chicago education who are generally of the leftist persuasions one of whom who has a podcast and writes for the Chicago Reader, who believed that it was all part of a plan. It was, the, the plan worked. There are, I mean, we, I had forgotten about uh, Renaissance 2010, so you mentioned it, Ren 10. And I truly believed at the time, Alden, that when you close a public school, an existing public school that has roots in a community, that has legacy in a community, that has generations of people who have sent their kids there or they went there themselves. You are severing people from a community. You are essentially unrooting them. And then when you create a, a charter school to substitute, in quotes, for the school that you quoted, that you just closed, that's like a temporary thing. Charter schools come and go. They're contracted employees. They're at will employees. They they could be closed at any given time. And then what happens? You've already uprooted people who live there. New people move in, generally with a different skin color. And guess what? They open a public school, a real public school, not a charter school. Alden, am I being too jaded in my view of Chicago education and politics? Um, 
I would say no. I don't think you're being too jaded at all. Um, I don't know if we've seen the example, and at least I, I don't know if I, I, I haven't seen it, at least very clearly, the example of, you know, kind of the, the you know, well, now let's bring in a, a, a real, you know, public school in some of these neighborhoods. Uh, um, um, but uh, but I'm I'm not saying that 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 we may see that in the in, in the future. Uh, particularly as as some of these neighborhoods uh, continue to empty out, if you will, um, but um, but uh, yeah, this is um, I we we've talked about this before uh, around you know the notion of um, you know maybe uh, maybe this isn't necessarily seen as a bad thing, um, um, but but the fact that you have um, the fact that you have had such a um, uh, you know, decline in, 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 in population in, in, in black areas. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we saw was that, um, we looked at a uh, black census tracts in Chicago between 2000 and 2010. And then we made note of the, of the ones where buildings were closed. And so when we looked at the black census tracts with closed buildings, we saw about a 16% decline in population from 2000 to 2010. When we looked at black census tracts without closed buildings, we saw a population de- decline of about 16 percent. When we looked at data uh, trying to sandwich the, the, the year of the closings, uh, we, so we looked at a slightly different set of census data that uh, uh, tabulated population over a five year period um, between uh, 2009 and 2013, that's five years, 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013. And then the five years immediately after that, 2014 through 2018, the the majority of black census tracts with a closed building lost roughly about 9% of the population between those two five-year periods. The census, the black census, majority of black census tracts without any closed buildings lost maybe just above, above 3% uh, of their population uh, between those two five-year periods. And so our takeaway was the tracks that had closed buildings saw a sharper decline in their population in the five years immediately after the closings. And so that's not to say that the closings exacerbated population, but um, but that is the reality. The population fell sharper in those census tracts, and uh, when uh, and I and you know I I this has been a great joy for me to be a part of this uh, this effort. Um, I give much props to Sarah Nader and Lauren. You know they're the real superstars here. I, I provided the data uh, uh, for for the story, but they were the ones out there talking with people, framing the story. They had the history and the context. They wrote the stories. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, they talk with a number of people in these communities, uh, where the buildings were closed, who talk about, you know, anecdotally how, how very clear to them, the neighborhoods around, uh, these school buildings have changed since the closure. And, And you talk about these being community anchors. And so, you know, I think stepping back out of all of this and saying, what do you think will happen, especially in disinvested communities? If one of the things that we uh, that that any community holds near and dear to its heart is essentially shuttered, um, what do you think is going to happen? And I would imagine most folks would say, well, if the community anchor is gone and perhaps what in some of these communities might be seen as as one of the only real community anchors, you know, that's probably not going to be. Uh, something that is, is, is certainly going to perhaps drain uh, the energy that people may have, uh, uh, at least to some degree, uh, in that community. Uh, it gives them one less reason to stay rooted in that community, especially if you don't have a whole lot of other things that are going on that want, that will keep you rooted. You know, maybe you've got your church. Um, uh, maybe you've got a, a block club or community group. Maybe you've got relatives or friends. Um, but if you lose your school, uh, and you've got pharmacies closing. You've got um, you've got businesses closing. You've got you know shopping. Uh, you know grocery grocers closing, which is the case in many of these communities as well. Um, and you've got a lot of other things that you never had to begin with. Um, you know what what's going to hold you there? And so, on some level, I think it makes sense that we have seen what we've seen 
post the closings and largely speaking what we've seen in in many uh, black neighborhoods in Chicago that have long not had amenities, um, a reasonable level of of public safety, um, a reasonably good relationship with police um, and other kinds of bells and whistles that make people feel really good about where they live. And that's not to say that these folks don't love where they live. Um, I, the folks in Inglewood, I think, love Inglewood more than any anybody in Chicago loves their community. Um, but uh, but but yeah, life life is is certainly a challenge in many of these communities. And when you pull a school out, uh, that's that in some respects might feel like you know the the heart being ripped out of out of the community. All right, before we get into the politics of the the matter and also personalize the story a little bit, which I really am looking forward to doing. Um, one last point I want, uh, that y- your, uh, uh, series has shown and just address it, the issue of saving money. And one of the arguments used 10 years ago of closing the schools, not just by Mayor Rahm or Barbara Bird Bennett, uh, but by the Chicago Tribune editorial board, Civic Chicago, et cetera, is, uh, we have to save money. We cannot continue to throw good money after bad. And these schools are failing. And the indication of the schools failing is that students have left. That's what they always say. You know what I'm saying? The people are uh, reacting with their feet. They're leaving. And so we're going to save money. And then when we save money, we can invest more that money that we saved in the children who save. So they're really going to be, we're really doing it for them. Um, this is the argument that the greatest minds of Chicago used 10 years ago. Uh, Alder, did you uh, and Sarah and Nader uh, and Lauren discover that money was actually saved by closing these schools? Well, you know, through data, that wasn't something that we we we, we dug in deeply on. Um, I do think, though, that what can be said pretty clearly is that um, closing the schools did not was no was not at all a panacea for the financial struggles of Chicago public schools. And and I think that's actually very interesting when you also consider the fact that Chicago public schools was in the in the the predicament of 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 under enrollment largely because the um, you know the uh, you know our enrollment has declined precipitously you know for you know a couple decades or more actually at this point but the district is smaller now right and so. Um, one would think that maybe the financial challenges would, would perhaps be eased some by the fact that 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 there are fewer students in the district now um, and there are fewer buildings by virtue of the fact that they've, they've closed so many schools. But um, but but the district still remains, uh, you know, largely um, in financial trouble and year to year, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to make ends meet. Um, so. Um, um, so we did not, you know, that wasn't part of the analysis that we did. But I think it, it's fair to say that closing the schools did not pull CPS out of its, um, you know, its its perennial troubles uh, financially. All right. Uh, just, yeah, that's that was a key point, I think, in the first article uh, that ran a few weeks ago. All right. Let's talk about the backdrop of politi- the political backdrop. Uh, I, uh, as I always point out when I interview Alden. I'm older than Alden, so my memory goes back a little longer than his. I'm the old man in this conversation. Uh, I think that's why Alden enjoys talking to me so much, because it makes him feel so young. <laughs> uh, but the, the notion that the Chicago public schools are horrific, absolutely abysmal public school system that must be changed, uh, was sort of an underpinning the Daily and Rom which was interesting because I thought Daly was supposedly the one who saved the system. Why did Rahm need to save it? But that's kind of like the politicization of the schools and how mayors use the schools to make themselves look better. But to a large degree, it goes back to a statement made by William Bennett. I remember talking to you about this a little earlier. William Bennett was the uh, secretary of education uh, in the, uh, was it the Reagan years? I think of the Reagan years. And he was a conservative, uh, right-wing Republican, great thinker. And those some at one point they had great thinkers in the Republican Party, uh, and uh, he made a visit to Chicago, and he proclaimed that Chicago the worst public school system uh, in the country, and that has been used as a line, politically speaking, uh, ever since. 
And so like Mayor Daly would go, we were at the worst public school system in the country before I became mayor, and now look how great we are. And the mayor, Rahm, said, we had the worst public school system in the country, and now look how great it is under me. So it's always used as a system to prop up a mayor. And it's just continually badmouth the public school system of Chicago and effectively badmouth the children who are in the public school system of Chicago as they're all inferior. And it's all like, it's a wretched system that no parent would want to send their child to. And I always like to point out that there's some really smart, (laughs) functioning human beings who are products of the Chicago public school system. And I happen to be talking to one now, ladies and gentlemen, and you've heard him now for about 30 minutes. You realize he's a very smart man and a very successful journalist. And I want to point out Sarah Karp, one of the other co-authors of this great investigative piece, is also a product of Chicago public school system. She's a graduate of Lincoln Park High School. Shout out, Sarah. And you were there, Alden. I know you weren't even aware of it when I first told you this, but you were there in the public school system of Chicago roughly at the same time that William Bennett proclaimed it the worst public school system in Chicago. And I think that's the political backdrop that gives mayors like the confidence they feel they have to have to like assert we're doing a service for the children of Chicago to shut down this system and close these schools. And I'm like, but... There's a lot of freaking smart people in the school. A lot of great teachers, a lot of great principals, a lot of caring parents who send their kids to these schools. Why are you treating it like it's just sewer water or something? Yeah, I was oblivious to uh, to to much of that conversation. I, I came out in uh, in 1987 uh, out of Whitney Young, and um, you know Whitney Young has long had a reputation as being you know a really really great school. But, you know, I had peers that I met when I was in college who were from Sullivan, who were from, um, you know, Hyde Park, uh, you know, from Marshall, uh, from uh, Morgan Park, from Kenwood, which were, at, you know, in, in the late 80s were regarded as good schools as well. Um, uh, uh, some, uh, I knew one, one cat, uh, a couple of guys who were, went to Fenger. Um, so, you know, it was like, you know, if you zoom out and you look at the system as a whole, yes, there were challenges, no doubt, but, but you're right. There, 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 there were, and these, these are all, these are all black students that I'm talking about as well. Um, you know, there were tons of fairly sharp, talented, uh, young people in all schools across Chicago. And some were lucky to have many, uh, and others didn't have quite as many, but, uh, but yeah, without a doubt, there are, and you know, like you said, there were there were school communities, there were parents, um, there were principals and teachers at all these schools who were dynamic and sharp and cared a, a great deal. Um, uh, I, I, I hadn't mentioned this story to you, but when I was in eighth grade at Foster Park, well, I told you some of my Foster Park stories. When I was in eighth grade at Foster Park, and I had gotten accepted into Whitney Young, my uh, my uh, eighth grade uh, homeroom teacher. Uh, 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 Rosemary Dukes, uh, who was fantastic, absolutely, uh, probably the, the the best teacher um, that I that, that I've had, um, and I was with her for seventh and eighth grade. But she made me stand up in front of the class and tell the class that I had gotten accepted at Whitney Young. And I'm thinking to myself, Miss Dukes, don't please don't do this. They are going to they're going to ridicule me. They're going to be like, oh, you think you this and that. And I'm like, don't make me do this. And so I did. And they clapped. They clapped, Unpro- you know, unprompted. And I was like, wow. Um, and, you know, there were a, a couple kids, um, you know, at the end of eighth grade, you know, were signing autograph books and everything and, and whatever and sending goodbyes who were just like, you know, you know, we are really proud of you, you know. And so for me, you know, it was kind of like, you know, kids who you may think don't care about education. You may think, oh, God, look at their test scores. They, they've given up. Their, their families don't care, blah, 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 blah. And you know what? I, I think it's not that they don't care. I think for some folks, they just don't believe it's possible for them. 
they 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 may not necessarily say, hey, this isn't going to be my route. I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to get through. But, you know, I don't I don't see this as being an area where I'm, I'm good at or good enough. Um, but I think they do value. I think they do value and they honor. You, you think about the story about Derrick Rose. Right. Remember, his his brothers were like, you know, we are going to make sure that you are safe. We're going to make sure that you have everything you need in order to excel in your craft. I think when people see talent, uh, regardless of what area it is, education, uh, art, athletics, um, they will say, you know, we are we are, we're behind you. We, we want to see you excel. We, you, we think what you're doing is great. You know, if I could do it, I'd do it, too. But, you know, I, I can't. So I'm going to do something else. Um, so, you know, for me, that moment was uh, a testament to, the, you know, kids, uh you know, really valuing education. And I think the question of why we, we have the, the, the broader challenges that we have are, are not as explained away so simply as the kids can't or that they don't care or that they don't want to. I, I think it's a much more complicated uh, issue that, and like I said, just requires a lot more kind of discussion and thought to, to, to kind of get at how we remedy those things. But um, but yeah, there, like to your point, there, there were a lot of very and have been throughout time, a lot of very talented, sharp um, and dutiful kids uh, in, in CPS. Oh, that's that I agree with you. Uh, and um, uh, I I know just speaking for myself, I'll go back to you. But with limited success I've had in this world, I was give a shout out to my mom. My, my late, I know I told you this. She tracked me. <laughs> yeah. She was looking out for her Betty, you know, and I believe that any successful kid, you had someone looking out for you. And it, uh, and some kids, like my mom had more resources than a lot of others. So we had that advantage right there. You get what I mean? But, I know there were people looking out for you uh, every step of the way and Sarah Carp and anybody else. Uh, and when you just say the schools suck and they're terrible, and this and that, you're really making statements that are a lot deeper than about public education, in my humble opinion. And you're showing your attitude about kids and, and how the, and t- uh, they're reinforcing what you just said. Uh, it is not possible for them. If you follow what I just said, you know what I mean? You're reinforcing that notion. Um, talk a little bit about your career as a young scholar before you got to Whitney Young. All right. This is my favorite part of the Alden Lowry story. Uh, <laughs> so I, so, um, so, uh, so I, uh, I was, uh, you know, I was born, uh, we were, we were my, my mom, uh, it was just me and my mom. Um, and she was still living at home with, with her parents, my grandparents, and she had two younger sisters. Uh, so I, I was in a, in a bedroom with, my mom and her two younger sisters uh, as a small child in the Le- Claire courts. Um, and uh, when she got the chance to, she was working and when she got the chance to, 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 to move out, I was about three years old. We moved to the Auburn Gresham neighborhood and she enrolled me in a little n- nursery school. I was, yeah. Three, maybe going on four. So I spent a year in that nursery school and then she enrolled me in kindergarten at uh, St. Teresa, the little flower at our 80th and, uh, and honorary. Um, and I was just called Little Flower. And so um, she had options. She had uh, she had uh, Barton, Claire Barton, which was literally right down the street uh, from where we lived. We were on 78th and Winchester and Barton was uh, between 76th and 77th uh, uh, and Winchester and Walcott. Um, and I think that was actually like the neighborhood school. Uh, but there had been some incident that had happened there. Uh, just maybe a, a couple of years or so before I started and that that scared her off. Scott Joplin, I think, had, um, I believe Scott Joplin maybe had opened by then. I'm not 100% certain. Uh, it was like right around the corner and literally across the street from Little Flower. And um, and uh, she didn't want to send me there either. So um, so she sent me to Foster Park, which was essentially a mile south. It was 85th and Wood. And uh, this is, I was in, I'm sorry, I was in St. Teresa Little Flower. I was in Little Flower through sixth grade. Uh, tuition got a little got a little expensive, so she wasn't able to to keep me there for my last two years, and so she sent me to Foster Park. And um, 
And so it was the first time I was in a, in a Chicago public school and, uh, a little flower was relatively tame, uh, you know, um, but, uh, but Foster Park was a completely different world. And I, I remember being there for maybe about a week or so. And I'm thinking to myself, if she thought she was saving me from something, <laughs> I was like, no, I, I don't, I'm, I can't imagine how quote unquote bad Barton or, or Joplin would have been, but I'm like, it probably couldn't have been a whole lot worse than, uh, than than Foster Park, and 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 again, I'm 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 not I'm not putting down Foster Park's my alma mater, uh, class '83. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not at all trying to talk it down, but but yeah, it was a it was a rough school. It was it was it was it was it was, it was a, a rough school, um, and I remember. So so I was telling you about. Um, I was literally it was like the first week of school. And uh, there was a there was a and all of the kids. I remember my first impression was like, these are some big kids. <laughs> you know, I've always been a short. I've always been a short kid. Um, and back then I was short and slender. Um, and I remember these, these. everybody seemed like they were a foot taller than me, maybe 50 pounds heavier than me. And I was like, oh, my God, I am. I am like a munchkin. And um I mean, the boys, the girls, everybody was was towering over me. And so I'm sitting in class. I don't really know a whole lot of people yet. I, I, I had befriended a couple of folks um, my first week or so there. But the, but a lot of the kids were still new to me. And uh, someone cracked a joke on one of the girls in the class. And uh, I'll, I'll call her Susie. Uh, the names have been changed to protect the innocent. And so Susie sees me laughing. And Susie, like, you know, gets on me. And I'm just kind of like, uh-oh. I'm like, hey, I'm, you know, I, I, you know, it's like, I, you know, hey, I, I, I didn't mean any, any harm, you know, you know, Susie wasn't having it. Susie was ready to fight. And so she talked about how she was going to beat me up after class. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm only been here a week and I'm going to get beat down by a girl. And I know I would have gotten beat down because Susie was, uh, Susie was no joke. Um, so fortunately she, she didn't, uh, she didn't come after me after class, but uh, yeah, I was, I was, I was scared. I was scared. And so I was like, okay, I got to get tough. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to get tough. So like the next week I'm at recess and I get into an argument with some kid who's maybe a grade or two younger than me. So I'm in seventh grade. He might've been in sixth grade or fifth grade. And he was a little guy. He was a little shorter than me. So I get in his face and we end up pushing and then I, I get him down on the ground and, you know, I'm roughing him up. And then one of my friends comes over and pulls me off. I was like, I'll leave him alone, leave him alone. And then, you know, he's like, oh man, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, nice job, blah, blah, blah. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, I, I got it going. I'm good. I'm all right. I'm straight. So we, um, we go back to class and um, maybe close toward the end of the day, one of the guys in the class comes over to me and he's like, Hey, did you uh, beat up some kid uh, recess today? I was like, I was like, I, you know, I gave some guy a business. I, it was no big deal. I didn't even know the kid's name. He's like, oh, man. Well, it's like we, we need to huddle. We need to have a powwow. And uh, so, uh, again, changing the names for the innocent, Bob decided to call a powwow. Right. So Bob is sitting with me and a few other guys in the, in the class. And he's like, OK, so the kid you beat up is this kid. He's got a big brother. And that big brother is coming to the school after class to get you. So we got to figure out a plan. So, so he said, okay, well, if he comes after you, I can handle him. But then he knows the kid who was the, the brother who was coming to beat me up. He was like, that guy knows somebody else. And he said, well, if that guy is in it, I can't handle him. So he points, he points to George and says, George, you can take him. And George is like, how did I get involved in this? I, I mean, I didn't beat nobody up. Why, why am I fighting all of a sudden, right? So, so Bob continues. He says, okay, okay, well, you can handle him. George, you can handle him. But if that guy goes and gets, and he mentioned some other dude, I don't even remember what the guy's name was. He said, if we get, if they get him, it's over. We lost. So whoever that guy was, he was, he was the, 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 the big man on campus who was going to wipe us all out. So, but anyway, so literally we, we go through all of that. And at the end of the day, they're like, you know, the bell is about to ring. So they're like, okay, let's figure out a way to get you. Let's get an exit plan. So we literally concocted some kind of route for me to go out a different door that I normally go out of. And we like walked the school's 85th and Wood. Uh, me and a buddy went out. I had like a jacket over my head or something like that. So I couldn't be seen. 
Um, and we walked all the way down to 87th Street. We walked from 87th Street all the way back over to Damon and then down Damon um, uh, back toward. And I actually lived, like I said, like a mile south. So I like walked probably like two miles that day to get home. Um, but um, but fortunately, I was uh, avoided uh, any confrontations and, you know, it never came back on me after that. But um, but it was just interesting that, you know, me trying to be tough was about to get everybody in the class killed. Uh- <laughs> That's hilarious. man. I love that. It's the second time I've heard this story. I could hear it a third time. Uh, I, I, and and uh, it, it reinforces a separate point. And this goes to a conversation uh, that I had with, uh, I'm going to do a promotion, Professor Lance Williams. I urge everybody, when you're done listening to this conversation, if you haven't already, go check out the conversation I had with Professor Lance Williams, who talks, we talk about the, the, the mob psychology in the city of Chicago uh, and uh, how it produced uh, this uh, Mayor Richard J. Daly uh, and uh, uh, David Barksdale, who was uh, a black gangster in the 60s and the 70s. But the, we get into the issue of whether in uh, Chicago is a city that so loves violence and toughness, you can be, quote unquote, uh, well, the word I think uh, that Lance used is a nice person and survive. You know what I'm saying? So I just want to hear your story. I think a young uh, Alden Lowry with the fist flying, uh, struggling to survive in a new school environment. I believe you could have avoided all those fights if you used a different tactic. I actually believe this. I don't think Lance agrees with me, but I do believe it is possible to survive in the city of Chicago without resorting to physical violence. Um... What's your thought? Do you think I, I'm accurate in that or do you think I just have had a sheltered existence? Um, I, I think maybe you've had a sheltered existence. I, 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 I think there's certainly some of us who, who can go through life and avoid things. I think people who are good natured, people who are funny, especially if they're they're funny when they need to be, um, uh, can can avoid uh, conflict. Um, but I do think there are certain spaces where uh Conflict is 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 a part of life, and that's not to say that you're fighting every day, but just that you're you're being in an environment where there's conflict, and that, that's one of I think our challenges as a city, because there there are there are parts of our city where where conflict is, and, and this is a very real thing for for Chicago, um, because a lot of what we see in terms of the violence starts with what might considered to be very benign conflict um, and that grows and escalates. And uh, I can remember being uh, when we when I was at the reporter, we were doing the barbershop show on uh, Bocolo. Uh, there was um, we had a bunch of guys who worked for ceasefire. And one of them was literally a, a, a kid. He was 18 years old, I think, had, had been working for ceasefire for like two weeks. And, you know, we were talking about why does the violence exist? And his very matter of fact take was essentially because that's how we solve conflict. When we have conflict, that's what we do. We get violent. And, and then once someone has been victimized, then there has to be a response. And once there's a response, there has to be another response. And then you have standing conflict. Uh, and so it may have started with one incident, one uh, one moment of disrespect, and it's kind of like it grows and escalates. And then literally two or three years later, there is still a conflict between one crew of guys and another crew of guys. And at one time, this conflict was around drug corners and, and money that was being made with, with so on and so forth in the 90s. But once, you know, and Lance Williams is probably the perfect person to talk about this, once Many of those hierarchies were, were kind of dismantled and, and changed and morphed and warped. Um, now the conflict really doesn't revolve so much around at really much at all around, you know, kind of gangs in the way that we understood them back in the 90s. Um, you know, their crews and sex and, and people who hang together, or, you know, what have you, and they get into beef with somebody else. You go to a party and, you know, somebody tries to talk to somebody's girl or somebody, you know, disrespects somebody else. And the next thing you know, you've got 
And sometimes it's not even a fight. Sometimes there's conflict. Someone leaves, they come back with a gun and there you have it. You know, so it, it's, a uh, you know, conflict is a, is a, is a real thing. Uh, and I, I think unfortunately in, in, in certain parts of the city, it's, it's a, it's a very common aspect of, one other thing I was going to mention, I, uh, one of my first stories at The Reporter, this is back in 2000, I think, I did a, a story about the plight of young black men. And um, there was uh, a, uh, a scholar uh, uh, named uh, Juanza Kanjufu, who I um, um, uh, attended a mentoring group that he was leading. Uh, it was called Community of Men. They met over at, uh, at St. Sabina. Um, and uh, the Ark of St. Sabina. And I sat in on a few of the sessions that they had with the young men that they were mentoring. And one of their, one of their exercises was essentially to get the young, the boys that they were working with to uh, role play a situation where they're in some kind of social uh, outing and somebody steps on somebody else's toe. And they would get them to act out that scene the way they think it might normally play out. And then they were trying to get them to then to to uh, to uh, recreate the scene with a different set of kind of standards and objectives to try to you know kind of hash out things without it resulting in some type of major conflict. But but yeah, uh, and and you know and, and 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 not to get too deep, but I think I think for folks when you when you when you don't have a lot, um, your pride and your respect becomes your currency. And so if somebody does something that you think takes that away from you, especially if it's in a very public setting, you know, that's a major offense. Um, and so it's, you know, it's kind of like if you got a million dollars and somebody robs you of your million dollars and you're broken, you're penniless as a result of that. You're going to be pretty upset with whoever does that. Well, if you don't have a million dollars, you don't have anything of, of real value in that way, in a material kind of sense. But what you have is what you think is your pride and your self-respect and your dignity as a as a as a young man. And somebody takes that away from you. Yeah, that those are those are fighting. Those are fighting fighting words right there. And uh, and, and sometimes people will will take it to the extreme because because that that's what they feel they is the only thing that they really have. Yeah, that's um, but remarkably similar riff that you went on that uh, Lance Williams also went on. So it's uh, um, it's amazing that I've heard this now. I had the same conversation twice. Not amazing, but it's it is how I view Chicago too. The retaliation culture in this city uh, is at the heart of so much of our violence and so much of our problems. And by the way, our our, our elected officials openly engage uh, in retaliatory culture as well. So it's not just uh, uh, kids in the neighborhood. All right, uh, let's go back to. Um, uh, the issue with the schools. Uh, before we move uh, forward and get back to the series, uh, I just want to make something really clear. Your days at the local public school, Foster Park, prepared you for Whitney Young. Am I correct in that? They did. You were, I mean, you were able to go to Whitney Young, one of the top schools in the country, and keep up, and then you went on to University of Chicago, I mean, excuse me, University of Illinois, one of the top uh, universities in the country, and you were prepared at uh, Foster Park. Am I correct on that? You, yes, I was. And, you know, I talked about I mean, I, I was there for seventh and eighth grade and, and had some 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 great teachers. Uh, I'm going to try not to flub the names here. Uh, but uh, my in my circuit for seventh and eighth grade were four teachers, primarily Miss Dukes was my homeroom teacher. She was also the reading and, 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 and uh, uh, kind of English teacher. Uh, Miss Williams was the math teacher there. Miss um, Thomas was a science teacher. I was in the science fair both years. She was incredibly encouraging. We actually went to the district. Uh, me and my uh, my partner um, went to the to the uh, to the to the uh, to the district uh, competition one of those years. Uh, Miss Helwig was my social studies uh, teacher there, and so I got a real foundation um, at Foster Park. Um, and the things that I learned there, what I was also learning at, at Young and then again at the U of I. And interesting, I talked about Miss Dukes being the best teacher I've ever had. Miss Dukes would kind of, I'm presuming, go off script from perhaps what, what would have been perhaps the district uh, uh, manual. Um, but it was certainly something that she always did. And she told us this when, when we were in class, that these were things that she was always teaching her students. But 
I had the most immersive experience with with black literature during the two years that I spent at Foster Park in Miss Deuce's classroom. Nikki Giovanni, um, Maya Angelou, uh, Langston Hughes, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, James Weldon Johnson, um, classic black uh, literature uh, up from slavery, Souls of Black Folks, uh, the Autobiography of the Next Colored Man, um, uh, Before the Mayflower, all books that I was introduced during my time in her classroom, books that I imagine a lot of folks didn't get exposed to until they were in college, books that I wasn't exposed to even during my time at Young, books that I wasn't exposed to even during my time at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, you know, I learned those things and the lessons from those stories in seventh and eighth grade at a at a what I, some would probably have said was an underperforming uh, elementary school uh, in the Chicago public school system. And, you know, it's that kind of magic that is happening in these classrooms that I think gets overlooked way too often. Um, wow. That's, that's an intense reading list for a seventh or eighth grader. I'm just saying right now. Uh, du Bois, I mean, you're asking a lot of of a seventh and eighth grader to absorb that, so uh, it's pretty impressive. Uh, I sometimes think, this is on a tangent, I shouldn't even go down this path, but sometimes, I'm not saying this was the case with you, but kids are too young to appreciate the book they're reading. And uh, I've had that experience many times. Uh, all of them where I reread a book. I'm like, oh my God, I know I didn't get this the first time I read this book, you know? Uh, and then as time goes on, it happens in reverse. Like I read it, I go, oh, this book is really not as good as I remember it being because it's so obviously flawed. Uh, all right, so what lessons? If, <laughs> if Chicago leaders... Uh, are going to take any lessons, in your humble opinion, from uh, the series uh, that uh, the BEZ and the Sun-Times just did that you worked on uh, regarding education in the city of Chicago, public education in the city of Chicago. If they are ever going to learn from the past and uh, the jaded person in me says, no, they're incapable, bad, don't even talk about this. They're just going to make the same mistakes over and over again because they don't view them as mistakes. That's part of the problem. Um, they view it as the policy they want to get the results they want. But if I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, uh, like our dear friend, Nick Dumkey always tells me I should give him the benefit of the doubt, Ben, being fair, Ben. Okay. Um, so if I'm giving the benefit of the doubt, what lessons do you think they should take away um, from this series? Wow. Um, so I, I would say that, you know, one of the lessons that they should take away is that, um, uh, you know, well, I've mentioned this, that this is an incredibly complex um, task that they have. Um, and partly because the environment that they're working in as an education system is one that is deeply inequitable and um, structurally inequitable. And so uh, they are working with, on some level, some aspect of the, the, the kids that they're working with are coming with a great deal of, of challenges. And so they can't expect those kids um, to perform as well as their counterparts who may also be in the system, um, um, but uh, may come with a lot of advantages from, from the very beginning. Um, I think it also means that so part of the, the I think part of if we're if we're looking at this system of public education as being something broader than just the people who are challenged with with actually educating the children, In the same way that we talk about our our answers to violence can't be resolved solely by police officers um, who are responding to crime and violence as opposed to actually being at the very forefront of preventing crime. I mean, their presence perhaps can prevent crime, but if we're not going to have a police officer standing in the doorway of every home and apartment building in the city of Chicago, and I don't think anybody wants that, you know, we can't expect police alone to prevent crime. 
our task with education is going to have to involve things that are happening outside of the schools. The schools certainly are going to need a lot more help and structure uh, and innovative thinking, the kind that we're, we thought we were going to be getting out of in 2010, perhaps. But um, but um, but but there needs to be a lot additional things that are happening alongside education. Uh, so that that's one of the things. And, and I think we got to get rid of this 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 private sector, this kind of commodity thinking, commodity, you know, the way we you know kind of uh, commodify education. You know, with this notion of um, well, you know. Because in a, in a in a way in a way I guess we we we've done that to some degree because there are schools where who who look great and fantastic and have great track records and that's where everybody is trying to send their kids to school and then we've got everybody else that's that's struggling to try to get by and you know the the enrollment thing and I've done this three times with my daughters you know, uh, in terms of high school, but also in, in grammar school. My middle daughter, I remember we took her to a test um, when she was like four years old and and we sat in that room while she was testing. And the thing that was going through our mind was that, you know, how well she does as a four-year-old will have a tremendous impact on the quality of education that she's going to have. And I just thought to myself, that's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. We should not have a system of public education where it's like if you're if you're not shooting out of the gate as a superstar, then you're going to end up in a school that is going to have a lot of challenges in terms of of being able to prepare you. And so, you know, we've got to figure out a way that we that, you know, our system is not a system of, of winners and losers in terms of the lottery, in terms of whether to get into one of these highly functioning schools. We've got to be able to make every school have the same kinds of draw and, and everything else. One of the students in, in the series, um, you know, talked about how, you know, we don't have a choice. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of like we're, we're, we're in these schools and it's just kind of like, OK, you know, you know, you know, we, we, we barely have, you know, the necessities and we barely have this, we barely have that. And, uh, and so, you know, here's something shiny uh, here over here. It's kind of like, well, maybe I'll have better luck over there, you know? So, uh, you know, let's, let's, uh, let, let's, let's really think about the ways in which, uh, these schools can be empowered. And, and when you do have schools that are in trouble, uh, you know, pulling a plug on them, you know, pulling the, the funding. To me, this is a, a lesson I think that's clear is you're hampering that school's ability to to, to rebound. Um, and so, you know, switching the staff over and, uh, you know, you know, staying, you know, at least at least reasonably close to student based budgeting when 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 the numbers drop. I know that they've given some of those schools a bit of a boost so that they're not completely, um, um, you know, kind of uh, bombed by by the loss in, in students, which is then, you know, presumably a loss in, in funding. But um, but I've always thought the student-based budgeting is going to be a real hard environment for schools with low numbers to be able to um, to um, to sustain themselves um, because you know you, if you've got a if if the typical classroom has twenty five kids in it. But you're down to where you're literally a seven or eight to one ratio, then you just can't have the same level of staffing in order to have extracurriculars or to have a very robust program or offering. And it's kind of like, in a way, if you if, if your school is down to seven or, or eight to one, my God, that's an opportunity. Right. Keep those teachers in those schools let them work with kids in that smaller setting. And, and maybe you, you, maybe you, 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 you know, the kids that are doing well, maybe you group them in a 20 to 25 to one thinking that these are the kids that are going to be okay. But the kids who are struggling, those are the kids that you put in those settings where they've got a teacher and that teacher only has five or six other kids to worry about. And maybe that can be the thing that can kind of help boost them. I, you know, I, I you know, I, I you know, I, I, like I said, I just think we have to, Stop with the cut and dry kind of thing. Bad school, bad teachers, whatever. You know, there are a lot of very dedicated folks. Um, the fact that people were fighting for these schools the way they fought for them, I thought should have been a real big sign to say, hey, look, maybe closing these schools. Look, look how much these folks really care about these schools. Um, so for me, you know, the lesson is 
don't close any more schools. Um, yes, under enrollment is a big issue, but let's figure out some other kind of way to deal with under enrollment than, than just thinking that, you know, that the problems can be solved with the, with the stroke of a pen. Um, you know, so. Amen. That's great riff. And I'll tell you what, uh, it would be a better city of Chicago, in my humble opinion. Uh, if Alden Lowry and Sarah Carp had been running the Chicago public school system in 2013, then Mayor Rahm and Barbara Bird Bennett. But those are the cards we were dealt, and now we're dealing. <laughs> we're we're having to d- deal with the consequences. Uh, and I'll close where I began. Uh, I began by talking about the 1.3 billion with a B dollar investment that the the city council and the mayor Rahm. Uh, made in uh, a gentrifying neighborhood, Lincoln Yards, uh, to further gentrify an already gentrifying neighborhood. And now they're turning to the teachers to bail them out. Uh, And I just, I hope folks who listen to this just rethink how we go about business in the city of Chicago and the, just like the stereotypes we have, like businessmen are smart, public schools are bad. And I just feel like your, your series uh, in its own way, did a lot to help address that disconnect. Um, so more work obviously needs to be done. So thank you, uh, Alden. Uh, thank you, Sarah Karp, Nader Issa, Lauren Fitzpatrick, for an outstanding work. Uh, and Alden, thanks for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Always a good time. All right, that's Alden Lowry. Somehow we survived. Uh, only the strong survived, to quote Jerry Butler. Somehow or other, we survived with my broken Wi-Fi internet uh, on my phone. Uh, DJ Nate, uh, thank you very much for persevering. Thank you, Alden. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.